Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, a love letter to the women who shaped me. Also, our very own producer Dale has a brilliant brand new book now available for pre-order. Painfully British Haikus by Dale Shaw is published by Michael Joseph and it's available on November the 14th. The clue is in the title with this book. The haikus are painfully British and painfully funny. Here is why. Why are you calling? That involves conversation. An email silent. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while and you're looking for ways to support our work, buying our books is the very best way that you can do that. This week, our guest is the writer, illustrator and Smash Hits alumnus Nadia Shireen. You might know her as the author of the Billy books, but you might not know she is a Pet Chop Boys superfan, a literature hoarder and a Paul Auster stalker. Well, she bumped into him in a pizza place in the middle of the New York City heatwave. We're in Nadia's beautiful, bright sitting room in North London. As you've been kind of clearing things out, is yeah. there anything that you haven't read where you're like, oh, I must read this? Loads. So what are you excited about that's emerged? Absolutely loads. Um, well, I'm just having a look at my shelves. Do you know, actually quite a few classics I haven't read. Books that I think I should have read. So I'm just glanced over that Rebecca by Daphne Dumour. I've not read it and I'm a big fan of it. You know, you know, you know I, I think I would love it. I'm currently reading this hot new book called Jane Eyre. I don't know if Jane you've heard of it. Ah. Yeah. So I'm enjoying it. It's low on lols. <laughs> You know, but um, so I, I, I did quite badly with classics when I was I was always a voracious reader growing up. I grew up in a house full of books, but for some reason, I sort of avoided reading the books that you were meant to read. I've not read any Dickens properly. I think I've read an abridged Great Expectations. I think sometimes with those books, though, you almost feel like you know them by osmosis. Even actually, Rebecca even is similar. It's like yeah. it's a pre-meme, isn't it? <laughs> those were the books that were the first yeah. memes. Yeah, that's true. I suppose I, I know exactly what you mean. And I kind of think, why, well, the reason I'm reading Jane Eyre now is because I visited Haworth a few weeks ago. Oh. Um, I went to I took part in a festival there festival for women's literature but it was a really inspiring place to be 
and just mooching around the parsonage was really interesting it's a beautiful it's a really well restored museum now and um walking around the rooms where they wrote Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights and I and I took myself I was feeling a bit poorly but I took myself for a walk on the moors I love walking I haven't managed to get out much this year and um I just felt naturally very driven and I was like, I really want to read it now. And I think that's quite, I think that's quite good. Rather than kind of making yourself read a book like homework. Mm. I think when you actually feel like, oh, I'm dying to read that. It's a real reminder as well, I think. I don't know if you feel this as an author, but like books will wait for you and readers will wait for you. And <laughs> you don't get so. that sort of feeling that sort of, you know, things come out and you're like, well, everyone's going to read it this week or they'll never read it. And actually, yeah. you can come to something hundreds and hundreds of years later when it's when that bulb goes off in your brain. It's you're so like, true. Yeah, it's my time. It's so true. There's this weird pressure, isn't there, that we need to be reading this right now. And do... It's the same with music. Yeah. Isn't it? It's like a, a really refreshing. I saw on someone's Facebook feed, they said, do you know what? For one reason or another, I've never really listened to Radiohead before but I'm going to listen to this play this now. And wow, it's amazing, isn't it? And it's, it's, it's true for books. Well, of course it has to be. Otherwise we'd, all, we'd only be reading I wonder whether contemporary fiction. Because I feel that generally now there is so much pressure to kind of consume and like to like do things rather than experience them. And the mm. volume of culture to consume, it feels like there's more than there's ever been. And whether that sort of, because of that, there's a risk of us forgetting that, it's okay if we're not reading everything and doing yeah. everything immediately. I feel much more relaxed about it now. I think when you when you um, kindly asked me to take part in this podcast, I obviously started looking at my bookshelves. Felt really embarrassed. <laughs> I felt really embarrassed about all the books I, I'm, I'm meant to read but haven't got round to. And I think when you're in your twenties, when you're so I used to read a lot, and and it's died down in the last few years. But I used to be a voracious reader, and I think you're quite aspirational. My bookshelves feel aspirational in terms of this is the kind of clever person I really wish I was. And when you're a teenager in your 20s, those are the kind of kinds of books you buy. Like, I'm definitely going to read The Tin Drum. Moby Dick, sure. And you just kind of fill your shelves up with you're these books. Seeing yourselves through the eyes of yeah. like new friends I'm and acquaintances. And... the kind of girl that can, yeah, read some Hubert Selby Jr., but can also read some, you know, whatever. And then I I do not know who Hubert Selby Jr. is. I've never come across. Well, I had a really bad uh, phase. Um, He wrote. Oh, my mind's gone blank now. He wrote Last Exit to Brooklyn. Ah, that guy. So, like, but that, but you know, and I don't think that's a that's an example of the height of pretentious yearning that I had as a teenager. Like, I am going to read Jack Kerouac, and I'm going to definitely like it. I'm going to read. What's the name of that really bad guy? Charles, Charles Bukowski. I've got some Charles Bukowski there because I got. I was working on a magazine where they'd reissued lots of Charles Bukowski books, so I got. I took home three of them, and I was like, "Yeah, come on, you're 22. You're going to read Bukowski and appreciate it." And I, I was like, "Really? This angry man just ranting? I don't like this. Is this meant to be great? It's that like it's like am I? Me- yeah. you know, hope and disappointment between sort of yeah. opening the cover. Oh." Yeah, it's, it's the same with music, isn't it? It's like when you're young, you try and pretend that you like certain bands. Uh, you, you you might say you don't, but everyone does a bit. You kind of think, oh, yeah, I'm going to really like... Oh, I'm trying to think of a band now that's a good example. I'm going to pretend I really like Bob Dylan. I don't like Bob Dylan. Uh, so I had years of pretending to like Bob Dylan. Then I had a year where I genuinely loved him, maybe a couple of years. And then I kind of got over it and I was like, no, nah, it's not that great. Sorry. 
It's like people who go, yeah, the best album ever is definitely Astral Weeks by Van Morrison. Is it? It's not. But it's on enough, it's at the top of en- enough best of album list that people go, yeah, 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 it is. Saying the big sort of feminoid drum, but it'll, I think it can be a bit male, can't it? And it's like, oh this God, is so... Oh my God, 100%. I mean, my, my, the books I read and the music I consumed in the mid to late 90s were, I would say, 99% male. <laughs> I'm very much the pro. I'm I'm a um, um, I'm a non-white woman, and yet I would say that the kind of the culture that I grew up with and that I enjoyed consuming, and a lot of which I still love, was pretty much exclusively white male, for a myriad of reasons. Well, it's re- I think it's getting better. I want to believe it's getting a bit better, but there's so it's very difficult to kind of you really really had to go looking for things that weren't white and male and nowhere to find them when you're young and someone said this is cool this is the thing and you're like okay I guess this is cool yeah oh that's completely me I'm very suggestible (laughs) and um and I was like yeah I guess I'm allowed PJ Harvey and Bjork but apart from that musically I'm pretty male and books wise trying to think you know I, I barely I, you know Enid Blyton like I'm scrabbling around in my head for uh, who was fe- I know fave. exactly right but that, that that's on, who was in my house when I was growing up problematic faves so the life of Roald Dahl by Donald Stark. well hey talk about problematic faves. right I mean he was yeah I I grew up so I grew up in a house of readers but there weren't many of the books in my house were not in English so my dad was a voracious reader but he read in Urdu. My mum read in English, but I didn't... She read a lot of P.G. Woodhouse, which I love, and I definitely um, loved growing up in a house full of those books. She read a lot of Agatha Christie, who I wasn't really massively into. Um, she was a keen reader as well. That's so interesting, because they're both writers who are often considered to be sort of quintessentially English, culturally, about the sort of... So a think, certain kind of... I think, I think you've got to remember... I think, so my parents grew up in Pakistan, and uh, lots of people who grew up uh, in the Indian subcontinent were fed a very particular kind of Englishness. So, you know, they, they were taught in English and were given... My mother, my mum has read all the classics. She's, you know, in that very pure English way, in a way that I haven't. And Roald Dahl... How did Roald... Roald Dahl was in my house, I guess, because of my big brother, maybe? Um, but I, I got absolutely obsessed and I kind of read him voraciously and was just obsessed with him and didn't realise until... I maybe didn't realise until he died that he was really famous. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, like I, I was like, he was oh, your... he writes to me yeah. and these are my stories and that's great. Obviously, I was a child and there was no internet. And I guess friends at school would read him, but I didn't realise that he was this massive deal. But it's such an intimate relationship to have, isn't it? And I think, mm-hmm. you know, I felt a way about writers where I'm like, I don't want to share you. No. <laughs> no one is going to get this like I get it. But it's quite funny. It, it, like, I, but I was also a big fan of the Beatles when I was a little kid, and oh, I and okay. I remember, you. yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, they're massive, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> As you grow up, you're like, oh, wow. You've I, heard of the Beatles? I think they're going to be big. <laughs> I think these guys have got it. So yeah, Roald Dahl. I was like, he's my do you, pal. Do you have a favourite Roald Dahl? Oh, well, um, maybe the witches. Uh, the witches is probably up there because it's so. My favourite bit of The Witches is the beginning, the early chapters, Mm. which is about the boy. Uh, So a boy is orphaned and he has to stay, live with his beloved grandmother in Norway. And this grandmother is an amazing, formidable character who smokes cigars and is full of stories about witches. And she tells him these five yarns um, about 
local children when she was growing up as a girl in Norway who were taken by witches. And it's brilliant and it's eerie. One of the kids is turned into a statue and his family keep him in the hallway and lean their umbrellas on him. Another child is turned into a dolphin and they all play, or a porpoise, and they all play with him all day and then he wags his flipper and swims away. Another one, she disappears, this little girl disappears and then the family see her and she's in a painting. And as the, as the years, and she, they never get her back, but she moves around in the painting. So one day she's feeding the chickens, another day she's waving from the farmhouse. And as the years go on, she gets older and older in the painting until one day she disappears. These are such, these are beautifully economically written little, each story is like a couple of paragraphs. This all takes place in one chapter, I think. But I think that's one of my favourite chapters of any book ever. Oh, really? Yeah. Because I barely remember The Witches and I should reread it. But I do remember being chilled by it. I do think that it might be his darkest book. It's so chilling. I mean, I think this little boy's parents get killed in a car crash. Two paragraphs in. Because his whole universe, isn't it, is for the most part, adults will let you down either by abandoning you or by mm-hmm. being evil. But you know what? Because I, I work in children's books, um, you do have to get rid of the parents. That's why if you think about children's literature, mm-hmm. so many children are in boarding school or they're orphans or their parents are out of the picture because parents get in the way of a story. They kind of get in the way of an adventure. If you've got your mum mm. saying, tea time, you know, come back in. What I, I mean, Roald Dahl, there's a, as you say, problematic fave. Um, and there's a lot uh, to be said about kind of his awful views on women and um, Jewish people. And, you know, it, there's a lot wrong with him. But as a storyteller, what I like about him is that he's always on the side of the child. Mm. And, and you like- have to be. And that's why it felt like there was a... That's that's why I think I had such a good connection with him as a reader. Because you're like, he's a grown-up, but he's a grown-up who gets me and he's on my side. Because I think that's such a big part of childhood. Is it's, You do sort of feel as though everyone is trying to thwart you in some way. Oh, you've got no power and no control. Your emotions are as big as your emotions, as adult emotions, mm. but no one takes them as seriously. No. And you've got hardly any way to control your day. You can have the odd tantrum now and then. But there's not much else you can do. So I try and remember that when I make my, when I write my picture books um, and when I draw them uh, in kind of the emotions I try and convey. But I always try and be on the side of the kid. Do you read many illustrated books or do you find that it's, it can be sort of distracting or... Truth be told... Or do you think your style is so sort of distinctive that you can, you know, read other, look at other work and just... I don't know. I'm separate from it. I think I think how you draw, how you illustrate, how you make books, it's like your own handwriting mm. in a way. Um, so I try not to chase styles because I think that's pointless. Yeah. I think I do what I do. If I'm lucky, um, the market will find that favourable. Mm. But I'm also realistic that everyone has a shelf life and that what I do visually might be acceptable or in fashion or whatever for a few years, but my time will come, you know, things move on. Um, but I'd rather that be the case than I try and ape other people. Of course. I do, however, I try and avoid looking at other picture books. Not because uh, not because I think I'll copy them, but more because I think we are... This country's great at making picture books, by the way. Like, there are so many great contemporary picture book makers out there. If anyone listening to this is going to get a picture book as a present for a friend or for their own kid, please try and find someone uh, a book by a new person. Because we've got the old classics and they'll always be there and they are 
rightfully classics, but we're living in like a golden age of people doing great work in these little, it's a real little art form, the picture book. Anyway, going back to your question. I try not to look too much because I get paralysed by self-hatred. <laughs> but I think I think that's really common. Mm. I, I know that that's quite a common experience amongst other creative people and certainly amongst other picture book authors. You know, you can look, but after a while you think, oh, why will I never be able to draw a tree like that person can draw? I think, I mean, I sort of struggle with that as a writer and yeah. I feel like words are sort of finite in a way. You know, there are... Yeah. There is a set number of words and you can use them and obviously there are tens of millions of variations of that but it's still for it whereas illustration that world is kind of limitless and boundaryless and oh my god no I think we feel the same I mean I feel the same what's good about being an author and an illustrator is that I can feel insecure and self feel on, this, two on two levels so I can feel that about storycraft and about the words I'm using and I can feel it about how I draw which is great you don't have to answer this if it's too painful and annoying question, but who are, um, is there anyone either contemporary or in the past picture books that you love? I mean, I'm going really to I'll give a shout out to people who are around now. And, and that's not just because I'm sucking up to them, but it's, it's, this is an answer because I didn't grow up owning picture books purely because we had a great library and my mum took me to the library every week and I used to tear through books really quickly. Where was your library? I was born in Shropshire. I was oh. born in Shrewsbury and I grew up in a place called Wellington. And Wellington is a market town in Shropshire. Um, my dad was a GP in a place called Oaken Gates. Yeah, Wellington Library is where me and my mum would go. So a very not, quiet place. I do not know um, the Wellington Library, but... So Wellington Library doesn't exist anymore in that building. Um, that it's been, apparently, it's now part of like a community centre. But that old Wellington Library building um, was really important to me. And we used to go there every week. And my mum would go off and look for her Agatha Christie and Dick Francis. And I'd go off to the kids section and, and tear through whatever they had. As I say, we were a house full of books, but just not necessarily picture books. And trivia, uh, trivia fans might be interested to know that Philip Larkin was a librarian in Wellington for a brief oh. period of time. Yeah, he obviously really, like, hated it. <laughs> and it's kind of the only time he, he's publicly slagged it off quite a lot. I think they renamed a road there, Larkin Way, and then I think it got changed because he'd been so vile about, about Wellington. But then anyway. I can't think of anything that Philip Larkin liked off the top of my head. He's quite... Not loads. Inspired most of his work, his hatred of his, Yeah, yeah, feeling grumbly about things. Sorry, I was... I anyway, yes, I, no, it's fine. I, I, I wandered off. So that's the reason that I didn't have... I don't, people often say, what was your favourite picture book growing up? And I can't, can't give them the lovely answer they might want, which is like, oh, I had a dog-eared copy of this. I never did. Contemporary picture book authors who are great, there's Benji Davis, there's Marta Altis, there's Chris Horton, there's Ed Veer. Oh, I'm going to leave people out, but um, Sophie Henn does good stuff. Oliver Jeffers is someone who a lot of people who don't have children would have heard of because his artwork or his books kind of straddle for some reason, you know, lots of adults are drawn to his books ah. as well as children. Um, so he's obviously fantastic. John Classen, who's an American guy, has done a really, has done some very funny books, which are very graphically bold. I came to picture books really late. I, I had a, I've got a fun, I've had a funny career. I moved down to London when I was 21, 22, and I worked in magazines for about 10 years. And then I was always drawing and always creating, but I was just doing it privately. And then when I was about 30, I enrolled in a part-time MA 
and I just wanted it to be a part-time MA in illustration because my idea was, oh, I'll start designing groovy T-shirts and stuff. Um, but the only part-time MA that would work with my work schedule as a journalist was one in children's book illustration. So I thought, okay, give this a go. And in doing that course, I suddenly was introduced to this amazing format, this amazing object, which is the picture book. So I'm coming kind of late to it, I feel. I've been doing it for 10 years now, but I still feel like a complete beginner. So did you always sort of think, you know, writing was the thing and then the drawing just sort of happened? Well, both always, both were always happening in terms of, I, you know, if you find there's not, there aren't many scraps left from my childhood because... Um, my parents were quite unsentimental, so a lot's been thrown away. But I was always making... <laughs> the con Marie's of their time. Well, you know, I was always making comics and I was always, you know, for friends or for relatives. I would I would never just write a letter. I would write a letter and then, you know, it would be covered in drawings. And so, so I don't know, I've, I've always found it tricky to separate the two. I was a very shy kid. I was almost mute, I would say, until I was about 11 or 12. And uh, as But as currency especially in my first school, as currency to kind of get by, I would teach kids how to draw Garfield and I'd be, or, or, or do their names in bubble writing. And so that would kind of get me off the hook. So I've got strong memories associated with kind of writing and drawing from a young age. I remember once the biggest crime of my youth was that we had exercise books and they would, we were only allowed to take an exercise book when we'd finished our first one. And they would sit there, these brand new, clean, virgin exercise books in this cupboard. And one rainy break time, I think I, I know, I opened the cupboard and I took one. I took this orange exercise book. And it wasn't for work, it was for me just to write stories in and draw pictures in. And, um, but the guilt almost killed me. <laughs> Seriously, it was like, still now I have kind of shivers when I think about it. And I was dobbed in by this girl. And I was so upset. So mean. I know, it was really mean. I saw Mary Hildick, if you're listening, I've never <laughs> forgotten. Um, you're an enemy of the podcast, Mary. <laughs> I know, right? But I filled it with, I took it for quite sweet reasons, which was yeah. I just wanted to write a book. Who can begrudge a <laughs> creative know. child space to write and draw? But you know what was nice was that I think when the teacher found out and she saw the book, she actually ended up um, serialising my book to the rest of the class. Oh. And like reading uh, sections of it aloud at was the end of lessons. Was that a story? Can you remember? I just—it was writing? one epic story, and it was—it was about me, like a thinly veiled version of me, going on an adventure with like a husky dog or something oh. like that. I don't know. It was very dramatic. It was very dramatic. I think I just—I think I'd also recently seen the Goonies, <laughs> so I think a lot of scenes were just <laughs> straight lifted out of the Goonies. But she wasn't to know. So she just thought I was genius. <laughs> I was like, this is the plot of the Goonies. My sister did that. I think it was her sats. And she sort of, there was, it was creative writing. It was after she sort of got up. She was like, oh, that was the faraway tree that I just wrote. <laughs> I didn't write though. So oh, I don't Everyone must do that. I did that in my GCSEs. I just read The Liar by Stephen Fry. And I think I basically did like a, a short story adaptation of The Liar. Which one's The Liar? <laughs> it's I can set... only remember the one where the boy has sex with the horse. No, it's not that one. The Liar is, I've got hazy memories of it, but it's set in a boys' boarding school and it's kind of repressed homosexuality. I was well into all that when I was a teenager. So I think I did a short story about boys at a posh uh, private school I do being secretly gay. something about Stephen Fry's cleverness that I think is so appealing to the, the nerdy child, oh the God, sort of the so precocious yeah. you know, 12-year-olds that sort of... Oh, it was really, yeah. So one of my most well-read, well-thumbed books, is it here? It's like a comedy 
script book. Oh, brilliant. Um, and another one is Stephen Fry's Paperweight. I think it might be over there on that bookshelf, um, which is Paperweight is a collection of his writings for either like, is it, was it Be the New Statesman or something like that? But it was really aspirational for me when I, I was like 14, 15. I didn't have a clue what he was writing about. It's so weird because I think I was just thinking about that this morning and I think really? it's a paperweight there might be a bit and he talks about I think the first time Fry and Laurie was on telly and the morning after like going to the news agents <laughs> and sort of expecting the world to stop and people like oh, are you Stephen Fry from the television yeah. and nothing happening nothing happened I loved that volume yeah I That's... think I've, I've sensed I can sense it's up here because what was the uh, the scripts they Stephen Fry's or just the a, scripts, a general Fry collection? and Laurie script and then there was a book called, oh yeah I can see paperweight way at the top do you want me to get... Um, and there was, um, around 1991 or 92, there was a programme on Channel 4 called Hysteria. And it was like a comedy night done for the Terence Higgins Trust. And I had found... Um, it was I a, it like was a, a collection. Yeah, it was a one-off collection of the sketches from that night. And I was really obsessed with that book. I think I even maybe act... I know I did act out one of the sketches in English oh. with someone else when we had to do our little performances. I took it from Amassed Hysteria. So that was really well-thumbed. Oh, that might be over here. Sorry to walk away from you. No, no, it's... Um, getting the steps Oh, in. there it is. Look at the state of that. <gasps> oh, that's a good bit. Amassed Hysteria. Introduced by Stephen Fry. I mean, I loved this. It's got my name written in the corner. 1991 so I would have been 12 or 13 it was really influential actually this just introduced me to all these different people look at Eddie Lizard wow <laughs> look at his that is a heck of a shirt it looks like it's made from a combination of quilts and curtains yeah I must have used this for something I must have used huh? this for like a drama thing because I've replaced cock up with mess up. <laughs> <laughs> and why have I added the punch bowl? The punch back, the punch bowl, the punch line. I think I decided it needed another beat. Yes. You punched it up. <laughs> Triple I punched, pacing. I punched it up. Punch I think, up. Yeah. The final pathetic joke and cock up the punch bag. The punch line. Yeah. And I didn't think that was enough. I was You're right. Be- yes. Your version <laughs> is better. It is better. Wow. Anyway, that's funny, isn't it? And another well-loved book, which I'm only mentioning because I just glanced at it, is this, which is Q, Who the Hell? Tom Hibbert. This was published in 1994. So these interviews are taken from kind of 1990, oh, 1987 until 1993. Mr. Blobby. Dennis Potter. George Best. Chris Eubank. I really recommend you find this because it's the Tom Hibbert's writing. So he used to write for Smash Hits. In its kind of golden age in the eighties. Um, oh, maybe we should segue. Yeah, let's go and yeah, see the band. Okay. Everyone's going to be so sick. Of, oh, oh Nadia Shreen, boring on about smash hits again. What can I say? I love it. Um, where should we start? Can I well, don't want to yeah. Well, yeah. So, shall I move this? The construction, the Lego. Can, where do you want to go? Do you want to sit down here? Okay. Johnny hates jazz. What year have you got there? I've got here. This is nineteen eighty-eight. July, oh. December. Right. I've got eighty-seven here. So, where do we start? I was a big, I am a big music fan, big Smash Hits fan, and um, used to get it every fortnight. <gasps> and it's a bit meta, but there's an advert for more magazine. Yeah. 
I wrote a piece that I think the last ever edition of Moore, and really? I was obsessed with it because Moore was a kind of because it was the saucy, saucy, saucy one. Yeah. When I was a teen or a preteen. And I think, you know, I'd rather you went out and murdered someone than you read more magazines. So I was desperate to, to get in there. See, I, did, I for some reason, didn't read the magazines aimed at teenage girls. I, I, I don't know why. I was scared of them, I think. I, I was much safer in the kind of music and film nerd realm. So Smash It's used to love. And then... I mean, I could talk about this forever, but fast forward a few years and I'm working at Smash Hits. I kind of worked there from 2002. And to my delight, they had kind of slightly rotten in a bookshelf, just to absolve myself here. They had these bound issues of Smash Hits for each year. Um, so they look like Encyclopedia Britannica's. But when you open them, they are bound copies of Smash Hits, adverts and all. So, you know, they've just been sort of Loosely glued in. Win a trendy T-shirt, customised by a pop type. <laughs> well, there's something... I mean, I've gone on about this before, but there is something about the language that they used uh, um, at Smash Hits for this, from kind of 1986 onwards, um, which was just so funny. They kind of invented their own language. Michael Jackson to release first single in Ruddy Yonks. <laughs> Uh, then it was we have... quite sort of um, a well-meaning, slightly awkward uncle. I think Smash It's kind of follows on from what we were saying about Roald Dahl. They were on the side of their reader. Smash It's understood that pop stars are fascinating and exciting and we want to know everything about them. We want to know what kind of shampoo they use and what they eat for breakfast. So they understand that and they would never not treat that as important. But at the same time, they would also take the piss mercilessly and also would find it ridiculous and celebrate how ridiculous it was. Like there's a drawing here. I think it's meant to be a drawing of Iggy Pop. And there's a speech bubble and it says, Hello, I'm a crinkaway rental who's a living legend because I belong to the contoured face of Sir Iggy Pop. Oh, right. So it's not even for it's a wrinkle is talking. <laughs> this is the this is one of Iggy Pop's wrinkles talking. Um, the American genius who invented punk rock and who's mates with a famous ski instructor called Dame David Bowie. And it's, there's a competition. And then it says, answers on an ear trumpet to smash hits, open inverted commas, vanishing cream does not make one a genius, close brackets, competition. I mean, they're just very cheeky. The level of detail as well, the sort of the content that's gone in, that every page is just... Use that. Although I'm in a yeah, so they annotate everything. So there's mm. type, but there's also illustration. There's also funny captions, funny it speech like bubbles. It must have appealed to you as a as a writer and illustrator, yeah, the yeah. way that you annotated things completely, because they didn't waste anything. Um, the writing is so good consistently, and as I say, uh, Tom Hibbert was a writer. I would read articles about people I didn't care about, whether it was Los Lobos or Sunita or mm. whoever, because they were just so well written and so engaging. And I think that was not. Okay, I wasn't reading the classics, but it wasn't a bad way to learn about how to write. Real masterclass, isn't it? Because it is just absolutely, it's putting your reader at the centre of everything and not letting up for a second. Like the gag rate just has to be like boom, 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 boom all yeah, the time. Which you have to do if you do, if you do picture books, I think, uh, and children's mm. books. There's no room for your ego. Yeah. But like I sometimes think about, oh, if I was going to write an adult novel, what would it be like? And how would I write it? And what language would I use? And I think, I, I think the reason I find it tricky is because you do have to put a bit more of yourself into things. Whereas with a picture book or if you're writing for kids, you, you, they, they are paramount. 
and they are making sure that you communicate with them is more important than your own ego mm. or trying to sound really clever. Um, so it's quite, yeah, it's good for the ego, I think, working in, 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 ch- in, the, in the world of children's literature. Um, I think if you ever start to think you're better than you are, kids get bored and wander off. Or they're just not interested in your books anymore. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We'll be back to Nadia soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a book that's worth more than its weight in actual paper money. This week's steal is Story of My Life by Jay McKinney. It's the late 80s, we're in the middle of Manhattan, and gorgeous, bratty, wealthy 20-year-old actress-to-be Alison Poole is so sharply witty that she can't stop cutting herself on her own wicked observations. I loved McKinney's first novel, Bright Lights, Big City, and this is in the same territory, but it's ten times funnier and a hundred times more heartbreaking. It's just had its 30th birthday, but it's still so fresh and frank and funny. That Story of My Life by Jay McKinney, published by Vintage and out now. Now, back to Nadia. Telephone, hotline, point of view, voice your own opinion. You're too young to remember when you would ring up to hear a new single by someone, aren't you? But it was a thin, wasn't it? Because you didn't know what your favourite pop star necessarily sounded like. Did you do that for any... Who did you call up to listen to? I'm trying to think. I probably probably sneaked in a Pet Shop Boys, I Uh. imagine. Yeah, I was pretty obsessed with them. What was it about? Because I love the Pet Shop Boys mm. now, but I don't in a way that I don't know that I got them when I was younger. Was it just because they're just so unignorably fun to listen to? Well, I was quite nerdy and introspective, and I remember clearly when I first heard them. We'd just come back from a trip to Pakistan, and my brother had Actually, which is their album they bought out in 1987. So it was 87, 88, I'm talking. He's had it all holiday, and I'd had now seven, and an Aha album, and we did a swap on the drive back to Shropshire from Heathrow, and I can just so clearly remember hearing that album on my headphones, and it was dark, 
and it's very moody the way that actually begins it's very dramatic and um no I was drawn to the drama of them really um I know they've done lots of kind of upbeat songs but they're very Oh, I'm always drawn to a sad song, or, you know, mystery. Because what song actually? I can't. Actually, do, do you know the song Rent? Yes! Yeah. yes. So Rent kind of sums oh, up, it's actually. That kind it's of very, era. Yeah. And Always On My Mind and Heart, which are like bangers, but I'm always drawn to the kind of slightly, I don't know, turn your collar up, autumnal, introspective kind of thing, even as a eight-year-old with no friends <laughs> a mute eight-year-old with no friends um and they were my first concert I went to see them a year later um under the adult care of my 13-year-old brother but it was a different time uh That's yeah what really can I say lovely thing to do though with, with your sibling where did you see them where did they play uh, Birmingham NEC I still oh. remember it dead clearly and uh I've always been kind of yeah I've always been hungry to be an adult and hungry for this knowledge. Uh, it was their first ever concert and Derek Jarman uh, was directing the videos that played behind them as they played. So there I was at nine, earnestly sat with this huge programme, reading an interview with Derek Jarman. <laughs> A lot of it went over my head, if I'm honest. But, you know, I was always, I was just hungry. And the, the Pet Shop Boys and people like David Bowie and the Pet Shop Boys... Um, and, you know, Morrissey, to be fair to him, at the time... Were another problematic phase. Another problem was so problematic. But they were, they were great at pinpointing you to other great writers mm. and thinkers and musicians. Um, so that's another way that I've been introduced to writers. A band like the Manic Street Preachers as well do the same. You know, it's like, who is this person that they keep quoting on their single sleeve? And the Pet Shop Boys started that. They were always name-dropping writers and thinkers i'm a big pop culture mess it's a lovely lovely kind of chain isn't it it's like lovely constellations and you might one might resonate with you for some reason and, and then, then it will lead you on to another thing this is i've just before. looked up in mm. the books and i've seen paul Auster, so i must tell talk about this paul oh yes Auster story paul Auster. so paul Auster, that goes on from me talking about being a really aspirational 20 something and pushing myself to read things and paul Auster, the first book of his i read was uh called moon palace and I loved it, um, and I was like, great, he's fantastic. And I think I saw an episode of a programme called Arena, which is a great uh. documentary series that used to be on the BBC, and there was an episode about Paul Auster, and I was really compelled by him. He's a very compelling man, you know. So I started to absorb all of his books, New York Trilogy, Mr Vertigo. He's obsessed with coincidence. He's obsessed with happenstance, chance meetings, and how one chance meeting or interaction and kind of define how the rest of someone's life turns out. And I went, I was working at Smash Hits, and I earned, it was my first kind of proper, proper, proper job. And I'd saved enough money to go away on holiday. And I've got a cousin who lives in New York. And I said to myself, I'm going to go to New York. What could be more exciting? And I can stay with her in Brooklyn. It's going to be fantastic. So I saved up my money, flew out to New York for two weeks, and it was fantastic. I was walking around New York listening to the Beastie Boys, hoping I'd meet one of them, but just stomping. I just walked and walked and walked and walked. And I'm Imagine trying to... like a cold, like, ooh, is that... <laughs> Hello. Is that MCA? Uh, sadly not. And um, there's a Paul Auster story where, oh, I think it's in New York Trilogy, where a man st uh, starts following a hobo and he follows him every day and he starts mapping the route that he and the homeless man take. And he discovers that every day the man is spelling out a different letter. Oh. Isn't that interesting? Such an interesting idea. 
Anyway, so I, my head was full of that stuff and I was just walking and getting lost. And I was genuinely lost at this point. I think I was looking for the Beastie Boys shop or something. <laughs> and, I was, and I was lost and it was really hot. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to nip into this. There was like a pizza place. I'm going to nip into this shack and get a bottle of water. And I was just stood in the queue with this bottle of water. And I looked up. Guess who was stood right in front of me? No way. Paul Austin. What was he? But was he ordering pizza? He was getting a pizza. What kind? He was there with his daughter. I can't remember now. But I was like, oh my gosh. And it was funny because he was so, he was at the forefront of my mind yeah. at that point like in my life. Like you as kind well. of conjured him into being yeah. by thinking about him. It was amazing. Did and you, I thought. Did you approach him or did you just. Do you know what? I did. Because I said to myself, this is something. Like, this is weird. And it's a coincidence. So I said, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I think I said, are you Paul Austin? (laughs) (laughs) And he was very kind. He could have been horrible to me. But he was really sweet. And I kind of burbled, oh, I'm a very big fan of yours. This is part of the reason I come to New York. It's because I just see your books are so amazing. And he was lovely. I think he could see that I was, you know... 22 whatever and weird and <laughs> nerdy i would have been like and in dehydrated a, dehydrated like frizzy hair everywhere i was probably in like a weird music t-shirt and like a tweed jacket or something i don't know um and he was ever so nice and he said wow that is a coincidence he said that's really quite something and he said why don't you come and see me tonight i'm doing a talk over there and he pointed to the cooper union building and i was like yeah okay i went to see him do his talk and then in the book queue later on, uh, he signed my book and he remembered me and went, oh, you made it. I was like, yeah. So somewhere up there, I've got a signed copy of Hand to Mouth. Um, oh, oh how brilliant. Let's, let's find it. So it's quite a slim... There it is, I can see it. Oh, my God. <sighs> yeah, that's my signed, that's my signed Paul Auster, Hand to Very Mouth. Sort of simple, classic signature. There, it's called. Early Failure. I always thought it was quite hot. Mm, <laughs> that may have also had something to do with why I read a lot of him when I was in my early 20s. But that sort of that picture is just like imprinted on your retinas. And so you can just recall it and be like, yep, definitely well, him. it's very much the idea of what a proper, in inverted commas, author should look like. Mm. He's very much the idea of what I thought a proper author should look like, i.e. white male. (laughs) (laughs) So I used to be a voracious reader and my reading has dropped off. Last few years I've got a six-year-old, which is not his fault, but, you know, it does change things um, in terms of the time that you have and what you want to do with downtime. And the other thing that's ruined my life is I've been trying to read the internet for the last few years. It's just not ending. Have you completed it yet? Not yet. Give it a good go. Another year. But you know, I really miss books and I've really, I've just finished An American Marriage. Oh, I'm desperate to read that. What did you think? I really enjoyed it. Uh, Well, enjoyed is a, is maybe not the word, but I was very absorbed by it. And that's a perfect example of what you're describing. It reminded me of how much fun it is to read a book and how I'm ber- I berate myself all the time and so I'm always going you should be reading this you should be reading this if you've got any aspirations to write outside of your age group you need to be reading again and actually I, I need to forget all the you know I need to stop berating myself and just remind myself instead that by reading a, a, a book I'm enhancing I'm enjoying myself it's actually fun I love it it's a really easy thing to forget because you can get, oh, I do anyway. I get so caught up in the whole 
You're terrible because you don't read enough, boys. Well, especially with, so it's book of Boxing Day. And I think that yes. is quite triggering for a lot of people. They're like, yeah. these are the books that sort of represent where we are as a country. And you need to read them. And there are books on that list this year that I just adored and got and fell in love with and sort of the energy with. And other books where I really felt like this is a book of book. This is very dry. Yes. And cleverer people than you enjoy this. Well, I've been thinking a lot about if I ever wanted to write a book for adults I've been thinking about that and I think it would be so easy to get hamstrung by the idea that we must write the great novel that is considered you know and and I think I feel that doubly so well I think you feel that a lot as a woman um I don't think I think many uh Paul Auster types probably aren't troubled by mm. that worry are they but I'm quite troubled by it and and I kind of think oh maybe what I write has to be really important because I'm a brown woman and maybe it has to be very serious and maybe it has to be very I have to make sure that it ticks all of these boxes because it has to be better it's going to be judged in a slightly different way it's going to have to be really good to cut it and then I think why couldn't I just write a funny airport novel and so I'm kind of fighting you know for a second I was like set in the airport (laughs) (laughs) airports are hilarious but you know what I mean like why can't it just be a light funny thing it it doesn't have to be a booker worthy and it could be something that is is for people to enjoy but also for you to enjoy because I I I think you'd write a brilliant brilliant novel and it'd be so funny I want you to write about a a thinly disguised fictionalised account (laughs) of the smash hits times the smash hits era that, I mean, you know, it's different. When I was at Bliss, all I remember is the sort of being with people who had sort of, you know, a real magazine pedigree and they talk about, oh, well, you know, the days, they'd, they'd put us on a plane, they'd send us to, like, to, Con- oh, well, to New York I and miss- Concord to interview Jason Donovan. Yeah. And they'd be like, oh, well, we don't have any money. No so money I'm probably close. My magazine experience was probably more similar to yours because I was I was only in magazines from like 2001 onwards I think the 90s era was the that was the real let's People fly you all to curtains dry cleaned on room service yeah yeah I think that was I think I missed it sadly I'm always hopping from one alien industry to another <laughs> <laughs> it's my thing they're like oh no Natty is here the industry's <laughs> gonna shut down oh no the magazine's gonna <laughs> I used to do that because I was at Smash It's and I freelanced for the next uh, six years I closed down so many magazines I remember being on holiday and I'd been at Sneak for months and months and my editor going so sorry Nadia I know you're on holiday but I'm afraid Sneak's folded <laughs> you'll come back to no freelance oh. work and um, yeah I've worked on Bliss and more and I yeah did, did shifts on all these sneak, places baby. that have shut down I think that was one that was just, my dad's like teen deliberating over whether or not it was suitable and I'm doing oh, air quotes should... but I think we were allowed one co- like it was a sneak summer special that we right. were giving on holiday wow yeah no I, I worked I mean you know when I worked at Smash It's I wasn't bothered about the people we were covering it was like Blue and Daniel Bedingfield and Busted but um but I had fun working there they were a really great team good people but I wasn't cut out for it I don't think I was cut out for magazine or journalism I'm not cut out for it I was a sub-editor anyway, so I was more working in the kind of production of the magazine. Oh. I was working with text and image, funnily enough. And looking at all of the, 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 the detail, gags and the, the details, the way of pages. Loved it, you know, doing funny captions, making the headlines snap, editing quite a lot. Um, so you never, I once, um, that I interviewed Will Young with concussion. <laughs> what? I told oh, Will Young. 
Oh. It was very nice about it, oh, but it was a bit peculiar, that copy. <laughs> I didn't interview many people at Smashes. I was once trapped in a dressing room with Daniel Bedingfield. Um, oh. He was fine. He was well behaved. It was at the Smashes Poll Winners Award. And um, he started to sing kind of an acapella version of one of his songs. And I looked for the exit. <laughs> So how did you get trapped in the... Uh, I, I, say him in I say trapped in a slightly melodramatic way. Um, I can't remember what I was doing. I think I was roving around backstage. My editor, actually, Lisa at the time, said, Nadia, you'll be quite good. Just rove around because you don't care about any of these okay. people. I think because I wasn't a writer and I was always quite snooty. Not in a nice... You know, I wasn't snooty about them, but I didn't... I wasn't that invested in their fame. I didn't have to be nice, whereas the writers had to be nice because they had relationships to protect, whereas no one knew who I was. So I could just, you know, stalk about and kind of look for... Because I think there are a couple of years... I was a really, 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 really big fan of Anton Deck when they were PJ and Duncan. And then the sort of Anton Deck show years. And I think there were a couple of years where they presented the poll winners party and I never got to go. But I remember there was an interview with them that I pretty much probably still remember now. Really? Wow. And um, I'm talking about um, Mark Morrison and saying that, you know, he makes a fuss if um, if he doesn't get a proper sofa. So we're really? going to get him a settee instead. And I never knew the difference between a sofa My and a settee. My memories but... were... They got me to interview Nadia from Big Brother because they thought it would be funny to have Nadia interview Nadia. I remember that. <laughs> That's a very smash hit sort of <laughs> meta very joke, smash I think. thing to do. <laughs> you know, our Christmas card that year was us and the cheeky girls doing a nativity scene. <laughs> The cheeky girls were Mary and Joseph, and we were all, all the staff with a, we had our hands you together still, in prayer. I don't suppose you still have that anywhere. No, you don't have to get it no, now. No, not to, somewhere. I've someone got it somewhere. Will. Someone will have it, yeah. I could ask you, smash its questions all yes, day long, but back to the books. Sorry. I want to ask you yes. about Letters to Judy by Judy Bloom. <gasps> Letters to Judy. Love that book. Judy Bloom. I loved Judy Bloom. Um, she wrote the first book of hers, I think my brother gave me my first Judy Bloom book, but it was for younger readers. It was Super Fudge. And ta- oh, Tails... Yes. Oh, no, with a turtle. Was oh. it a terrapin? Oh, Doesn't he eat a terrapin? The little boy... The boy's younger brother eats a terrapin. Either in Tales of a Fourth no, Grade Nothing or, or Super Fudge. Because Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing is that the protagonist... I can't even remember his name, but his little brother's Fudge. And it's just about this nine-year-old boy dealing with his annoying four-year-old little brother so they were great but Judy Bloom gets more interesting as you get older and there was are you there god it's me Margaret there was I must must increase my bust I must I must increase my bust which is the one that talks about periods I think do they all talk about periods I'm sure that comes up a bit in are you there god it's me Margaret probably I was quite sheltered I was quite a sheltered kid well I think I've talked about this before but there's um there's laura who's the only girl in the class of tits and yeah. rumors that she like she goes behind the a and p with boys and i was like what's an a and p yeah as well? is it a sex thing yeah. is it some sort of weird like oh it's it's just like a it's a co-op <laughs> at the disappointment when i found that out I just she was so brilliant wasn't she i mean talk about not talking down to your reader then again maybe i won't i loved and that's written from a boy's point yes. of view and they taught, so she writes about the experiences of male puberty, which was really interesting. You know, it's like, wow, wet dreams. Crikey. Iggy's House, that was about a black family that moved next door to the protagonist. Then again, maybe I won't. Tales before, otherwise known as Sheila the Great. Oh, what was that one? Was that the back brace one? No, I think that was, was that Deanie? Deanie. 
Deanie was the back brace one. Tiger eyes. Yeah. So for young adults, so forever mm. and tiger eyes. Tiger eyes was really great. That was the one about a, a, a young girl whose dad is shot and I... she goes away for the summer. It's all about grief and barely remember that but I do remember just really weeping and weeping yeah. and weeping when I was a teenager there were very few things where women or you know, you know well, people were allowed to sort of have sexual experiences or you know think those thoughts mm-hmm. nothing bad happened there was no punishment no. it wasn't like you know Thomas Hardy where they all got drowned it's in really wells really amazing to read I think she's really important I say I was quite a shy kid and I didn't necessarily have I did I did get friends eventually but Certainly at that key age, when you're kind of 11 or 12, I, I skipped a year at school. So I moved schools when I was 10. So I went to, I started like senior school when I was 10, which, because academically I could keep up, mm. but uh, hormonally and emotionally, I was a year behind and I was already very shy and it didn't help being then a year developmentally behind everyone else. So I, I didn't really say much um, or I didn't, I, I wouldn't chat about like periods and stuff, you know, with other 11 or 12 year olds. I was dead shy about the whole thing. But Judy Bloom, like you say, she would talk about periods. She talked about masturbation. She talked about all sorts of you know, weird feelings about your like an- being angry or feeling resentful. For everyone goes on about forever. And that's the one people talk about a lot because that's the one where she talks about sex and yes. about a girl who loses her virginity. And I did read it and I was kind of, Obviously, I was interested in it, but weirdly, it wasn't, it didn't, I maybe was too young. Like, I sort of read it and went, oh, yeah, okay, but it didn't make complete mm. sense to me. And I love Forever, and it's interesting because that is the one book that comes up almost every well, time. Well, I bet it does. But I do think there are books that I felt more emotionally connected with. Any memory of Forever, for me, mm. is overwhelmed by Ralph, Ralph, yes. Ralph, Ralph, Ralph. Like, I literally cannot talk I mean, about forever. Be called... Because all I can hear is Ralph, Ralph, I think Ralph. some people think the book is called Ralph. <laughs> With an exclamation mark at the end. Yeah. In the shape of it. No, uh, I won't. Do you know what? I can barely... Is she called Catherine, the protagonist? So. Like, I can barely remember her. Because it's just so overwhelmed mm. with Ralph, so maybe I need to maybe I need to reread it. Don't know. This, you see, that's what the the maleness of literature, even when it's Judy Bloom. Right? It's like literally uh, the whole the Ralph situation. The, the Ralph situation takes up what two pages, if that. I think I've got I've got many faults, but one of my strengths, which is also a fault actually, is that I've got a very strong emotional memory. So I may not be able to describe to you in perfect detail someone's living room when I was five years old but I can remember how it feels that is a very potent thing and I can take myself back there now it's bad to have that as a personality trait because it means that you bear grudges and that you can kind of be like oh you know very I'm often told I'm hypersensitive I'm also you know I can but I you know the, the plus side is is that it really helps when I'm making my books I mean I used to say to someone I can remember as a child you know how people say oh if you don't fight in front of children they still know there's something wrong yeah do you remember as a child being able to weigh silence? Mm. So I can remember that. You know that some silences are different from other silences. Yes. You know that a way that a parent shuts a door, you know, you can hear the different emotions in that door closing. So I try and tap into that part of my brain when I'm writing a picture book or thinking about it or thinking about what perspective I want um, to come at this story from. And I try and do it from that. I try and be hunkered down in the back of the car with the kid. Not that my stories are kind of full of woe and tension. Even if I'm writing a story about a yeti or a bear dressing up as a bee, 
you still need to put real tension in that story and you still need a real resolution. You need your reader to feel actual peril and then to feel comforted. So, yeah, Judy's the same. She recognises that the stakes might be different, but the emotion is real. I love that copy of The Bidder of Suburbia. I've yeah. not seen that cover before. So it's one of, I've got maybe two or three copies um, floating around the house, which I think you do with your favourite books. I've got about five copies of um, The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole around this house. I don't like to leave them if I see them in a charity shop. But The Buddha of Suburbia is a really huge book for me. Really, really important. Was it 1990? Well, I, I guess I read it when the around the time of the TV adaptation. I want to say oh, 93? First published in 1990. It's a, 1990, I think it was okay. the early 90s when it was... Yeah, I think it's, the, per, I think it's the, perfect, the perfect novel. And for me, it obviously blew my mind because it was a book about a young brown person talking about being in love with pop culture and music and stuff that, well, I'd never read that before. I've not really read it much since, if I'm honest. Um, I think there's... I don't know. I'm trying my best now to read books mainly by women or, or, or non-white people because I think my, I think the lens through which I viewed everything was so skewed the, in the other direction. But I still haven't read a book as that, that kind of captures the joy, regardless of your skin tone, of being in love with pop music. And, you know, that being something that it's not just about music, it's about, in fact, it's kind of not it's not even about music it's just it's it weaves through the prose it's about his family and it's about his interpersonal relationships it's about him trying to leave it's about him trying to make his way in the world but it's just the way that kind of an era is evoked is just so amazing in that book it's set in the 70s I've not read this for a long time but I love the way that I thought it was about someone who wants to be a connoisseur but absolutely is a fan and I think that kind of touches on what we've been talking about mm. so just open this up here so I've got about 20 records 10 packets of tea Tropic of Cancer and On the Road <laughs> and the plays of Tennessee Williams and off I went to live with Eva I mean can and you that, see why it resonated with me like and massively I aspirational how, I don't know if you yeah if they were writers that you loved then but I can absolutely imagine you being like I must read these 100%. because yeah absolutely I was like this is who I should be reading this is what I should be doing I'm gonna I approach it like homework brilliant homework but I think that's because as I say my parents were huge readers my dad was really into music and poetry and literature but it was all in a different language so I think sometimes we inherit bits of cultural maps from our family and our parents I didn't so much from my parents my brother laid down some great roots for me to investigate did your brother read this have you talked to him yeah yeah we it? did both really we we both really um really liked it we were both bowie nuts so he did the soundtrack to the tv adaptation so it was kind of a perfect moment where kind of everything we loved came together huge thanks to nadia follow her at nadia shireen on twitter and at nadia shireen draws on instagram and if there are any current or former small people in your life, show them you love them by buying them any of her books, especially the Billy books. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me, Raiders of the Lost Arcs. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at the Daisy B. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked for more information about our guest and a list of the books they've talked about. 
If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people to find the podcast. For now, I leave you with Dorothy Parker's review of Lucius Bebe's Shoot If You Must. This must be a gift book. That is to say, a book which you wouldn't take on any other terms. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.